I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist for Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Towards a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Milton Friedman, the Nobel laureate for economics, once stated that the sole social responsibility of business is to increase profits. But what does that mean for investors? What kind of force do investors represent? Are they a neutral one or a negative one? Or can they be a force for good, capable of producing positive social impacts? In some areas, this force is already apparent, particularly among large public pension funds who have committed to making investments that reflect the values of their beneficiaries. In other areas, responsible investment practices are either more opaque or much less developed. But investors, as it turns out, have an enormous deal of influence if they act collectively behind investor initiatives, like, for instance, the Principles for Responsible Investment, or PRI. These movements mean that more and more investors are asking themselves what they can do to make a better impact on the financial system or society at large. As a result, even the notion of fiduciary duty, which has long been resistant to non-financial issues, is undergoing an almost seismic expansion in definition to now include systemic issues like climate risk. So stay tuned to hear from David Wood at the Harvard Kennedy School about the quiet revolution underway as investors begin to coalesce as a force for good, working to solve issues ranging from climate change to economic inequality. Welcome to the show, David. It's great to have you here. Thanks very much. Delighted to be here. No, great. Um, could you give us a, a bit you know, a bit more about your background and what brought you into the field of responsible investment and, and perhaps one or two of the initiatives that you're currently focused on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll spare you the long story, but I'm a historian of 17th century Spain by training. Uh, that's what my doctorate's in. And I married another grad student, and we had a kid and traveled around together. And one of those years where she was working in academia and I wasn't, I hooked up with a guy named Steve Leidenberg. Uh, the L in KLD uh, Research and Analytics, one of the first research firms in social investment to sell corporate social information to investors. And uh, Steve and I began working together uh, on, you know, what he sort of thought of as scoping of the field that was really rapidly growing and changing to reflect on what they were doing and for some synthetic work, drawing the different strands of responsible investment together um, to have a home. And uh, the last couple of years, uh, we've spent a lot of time with asset owners, uh, in particular fam- family offices who want to do impact investing and, and pension funds, labor-affiliated pension fund trustees who see responsible investment as a way to shift from the short term to the long term, mm-hmm. and have been thinking about topics like economic inequality, and uh, this year, spending some time with, uh, on the topic of the just transition to a low-carbon economy uh, as sort of coordinating topics to explore. Interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, your background gives you sort of a, a unique perspective to look on, on how responsible investment has, has evolved over the last probably decade plus. In fact, I think you've been involved in responsible investment even before the principles of responsible investment, PRI, was formed, which has kind of given you a chance to uh, uh, see some of the, dyna- the dynamics play out. I mean, how would you describe some of that change over the past decade plus? Yeah, it's been fascinating to watch, and, and, and it has been as a generalist and someone who's sort of spent a lot of time in graduate school, you know, reading lots and synthesizing what other people were thinking. Um, the field has been fun to follow. Uh, it's changed a ton. Um, I think, you know, some of the obvious changes is just the amount of attention and mainstream interest in responsible investment or, you know, what other covering terms are social investment or impact investment or sustainable investment all apply 
I think, to the same field. You know, rapid growth in attention and, to some extent, practice. And I think we're also at a really interesting point, say, with uh, the principles of responsible investment and the way practitioners of responsible investment are thinking about the field. Um, in the early days, it was a Big Ten approach, just get everybody in and get them to commit to the principles. I think, and you see this with the PRI's recently published blueprint, uh, we're sort of at a 10-year moment of inflection or reflection where um, signatories are beginning to ask questions about how they're having impact on the real world, what the adoption of ESG principles really does for society at large, and how the financial system is or isn't designed to deliver on social and environmental priorities. How would you differentiate sort of the kind of arcs between asset owners and asset managers, you know, as PRI has evolved over the years? You know, obviously, asset owners have and will always remain a backstop um, uh, to, to the PRI, but do you find that other financial actors, managers, for instance, are, you know, assuming greater accountability, greater um, uh, responsibility? I think that discussion is live, and it has been for some time. It's hard to know, you know, just the range of uptake and the range of practices that are, you know, fall under the headings of responsible or impact investment is so broad um, that sometimes it's hard to sort. I think on the asset owner side, we've seen a lot of discussion, you know, forever about fiduciary duty and whether you can think about ESG issues within the context of fiduciary duty. I think that's a more or less settled topic these days, but. Um, the constraints of the agency, you know, uh, of the agency chain between owners and managers and through staff and consultants is, 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 is very long. Working mm-hmm. with trustees, you see how far the, 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 the distance is from intention to action. I think on the manager side, yeah, it's an interesting question, sort of what's happened. You certainly see sort of the development of new products and the extension across asset classes of a responsible investment dynamic. There always will be questions about greenwashing and the sort of depth of um, practice, you know, in the manager community. But I think part of this sort of 10-year moment of reflection, both in responsible investment and impact investment, is within the asset management side of the equation, uh, moving from a tick-box mentality of, well, the owners say we should do it, so let's sign up to the PRI, to... um, a little more scrutiny of, of what the products are doing in the world. Hmm. You, you mentioned uh, fiduciary duty, and it's a, sort of an interesting period. Over the last couple of years, we've seen uh, not just one, but I mean a number of developments in a number of different countries um, in terms of redefining the scope um, and definition of fiduciary duty. Uh, you know, a decade ago, it, fiduciary duty simply meant, you know, sort of delivering the best returns um, with, with no exception. Uh, increasingly, um, you're starting to see language around environmental, social, and governance criteria sneak into that, um, particularly uh, around climate risk, for instance. Um, in 2015, we saw the U.S. Department of Labor expand its definition. Um, the U.K. has done so on the pension side um, and continues to do so uh, more broadly. And the EU Parliament is set over the next two years to uh, do the same. Um, so there are a lot of great results in terms of, of finally defining risk in a much broader sense relative to the traditional sense of risk, which tends to be financial, economic, and political. Um, but wh- why do you think that battle to reshape that norm has been so difficult over the last decade? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I'm not sure that fiduciary duty ever meant we need to maximize returns, and no one's quite sure what that means, given the sort of time horizon challenges of, of definition. Mm-hmm. 
but we definitely had a resistance, you know, to thinking about environmental and social issues uh, manifest in, you know, all over the place. Uh, I'm married to an anthropologist, and one of the ways I think of what I'm doing is I'm sort of doing field work among responsible investors. And the way that trustees, uh, you know, across foundations and pension funds are the ones I've had the most contact with, talk about fiduciary duty. It's not so much a legal construct as the weight of the world on their shoulders. I remember one trustee saying, you know, I, I asked a group of people to define what fiduciary duty meant to them. And he said, well, it's like a sword dangling over your head, uh, you know, ready to drop if you make a mistake. Uh, the way it's used in practice sometimes, fiduciary duty is is... is a resistance to change, and there are really good reasons for that. You don't want to do stupid things, but I think um, the way that fiduciary duty has been deployed has been to constrain the actions of investors who are looking to push the you know environmental and social dimensions of their practice. Um, so that actually is going to lead to a lot of resistance. It's very nice to see changes in guidance and legislation. I think that's a reflection more than it is a driver of changes in fiduciary duty. I think we're just seeing a slow evolution of the practice, and that's really what happened with fiduciary duty all along. You know, it, it changes slowly over time to reflect investment practice as much as it um, legal interpretations drive it. Hmm. Do you find, I mean, is there a, a bias to go one specific direction in terms of redefining fiduciary duty? Um, I just finished uh, last week going to a, a government task force meeting and sort of this open debate about changing the language around fiduciary duty and, and what trustees should think about. You know, and the question is, do you frame it around environmental, social, and governance criteria, which is very broad, or do you try and make it more systemic, you know, about systemic risk, more, more targeted around climate risk? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question, and it's an unresolved question in how people are, are, are talking about these changes. You know, one of the reasons I think climate risk, at least in some parts of the world, has come to be seen as, you know, part of fiduciary duty is because climate risk has been more malleable within sort of current risk assessment paradigms, so the way people quantify risk and the way people plug it into their, you know, uh, modeling uh, uh for their portfolio kind of works a little bit more easily with um, climate risk than with some of the other aspects of, of ESG. Uh, but I don't think that's, that, that, that's just it. It's that climate is sort of seen as a, um, an issue with important changing ramifications for investors, and so fiduciary duty is responding to that you know, more widespread consensus, again, uh, in some parts of the world, clearly more than others, such as the U.S. Mm. Um, whether fiduciary duty needs to change to think more about investors' response to the system versus particular environmental social issues, um, I don't really know, not being a lawyer, how I would answer that other than to say I think the implications of responsible investment and ESG analysis are, lead you to systemic considerations necessarily. People tried to avoid that discussion for a while in the sort of Big Ten approach in the early days of the last 10 years, you know, sort of the founding of PRI. But I don't think there's any way around the idea that investors have a role in the markets. They don't just take prices, but they make markets in various ways, and that is likely to be reflected in how people think of their fiduciary duty uh, mm. going forward. Mm. On, the, uh, on the PRI side, I mean, you're right that uh, you can sort of break down the sort of PRI history of the last decade, you know, in a, in a 
couple parts. I mean, that first early necessary part was about building, you know, a broad base of signatories, particularly on the asset owner side. Um, I mean, now currently those signatories represent more than 70 trillion of assets under management. So it's, it's, it's succeeded certainly, you know, in, in that objective. Um, but the other part that you mentioned, uh, the more ambitious part of addressing and potentially even solving, I mean, some of these outstanding socioeconomic and environmental problems that we face. How do you balance, you know, sort of the, the, uh, the challenges, you know, with opportunities of, of, of the PRI to tackle some of these issues? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, again, excellent question. I don't have an answer. I think the balance is changing. Uh, we saw this sort of in the, in the PRI tenure review, which led to the blueprint. Um, you know, sort of early signatories were beginning to question what impact are we having on the world, and later signatories were thinking we've took a big step signing up to these things. I think the move from adopting ESG as a way to expand analysis towards thinking about the role of finance and society is a big one. And investors seem more motivated to think about the role of finance and society, certainly post, you know, uh, financial crisis, but also given just the scope of the challenges like inequality and, you know, poverty alleviation and climate risk that we're facing. Um, whether investors or the extent to which investors are the right actors to address these challenges and the role they should play in multi-sector coalitions to tackle these challenges is something that still needs a lot of sorting. And investor coalitions, trade associations around responsible investment or impact investment, you know, maybe the place where that sorting takes place, or it may just happen sector by sector or uh, um, asset class by asset class, a sort of um, breakdown. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work on place-based investing where the goal is to figure out where investors fit into a broader coalition of interest trying to achieve some mm. social goal. And that seems to me to be the next phase of the discussion. Is there a certain area that you sort of would highlight? The Paris Agreement certainly stands out, or climate change, you know, as a theme um, alongside other actors, NGOs, states, um, you know, it, finance, you know, as an actor seems to have made some meaningful change. What do you think are other issues that investor coalitions or investors can sort of make a, an impact? Yeah, I mean, climate is, 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 is certainly the sort of paradigmatic case where people are getting together and they're also coordinating across different regimes and the policy regime and the investment regime is aligning. I think the financing for development discussions that are going around the sustainable development goals are a place where that, you know, that could happen. Uh, more narrowly, work on sustainable or resilient cities where there are sort of, you know, developed public investment plans which lead to industrial policy, which lead to roles for private investors, are places where you can navigate, you know, those kinds of discussions. Um, and like I said, I just sort of expect this to break down more on a case-by-case -case basis where you build up from the ground in particular kinds of projects where the discussion around, we spend a lot of time on infrastructure investment as an asset class and the challenges that it poses for privatization or creating good jobs versus, you know, privatizing public resources or being climate resilient in long term versus uh, adopting a financial model that allows for value extraction. Uh, what's being sorted in those discussions are, are, is the kind of broader um, negotiation between investors and civil society and the public sector that I think you're describing 
you know, mm. with climate at large. Do you, I mean, you've obviously done a lot of work on both climate change and now um, economic inequality. How do you think about the sort of the linkages between the two? Yeah, I mean, and we've been working with, um, you, you know, UNPRI for the last year or so, uh, just sort of trying to think about how investors can approach economic inequality. And we took up the project for, I think, a number of reasons. One, there's a long-running discussion about how the S in ESG doesn't get the same attention as the E. And inequality, because it is receiving so much public attention, because groups like the IMF and the OECD had described sort of an instrumental reason for thinking about inequality, which, which, which investors responded to, that inequality can restrain growth. Uh, it seemed like a topic ripe for exploration and a way to pull at this S and ESG question. It also, from my perspective, raises issues, systemic issues about investors' role in advocating for policy. Uh, taxation and tax avoidance sort of rises to the fore when you think about uh, inequality, and it's a sort of key issue where maybe in an individual case you don't want the people, the institutions you invest in to pay the tax, but you don't want to destabilize the public sector. Um, you know, it sort of invoked bigger issues, but I think for us the real, um, the, the way that it's, that discussion has taken shape is this sort of parallel of climate to the E and inequality to the S as trends against which investors can design a strategy. The strategies look very different and what, in, what role investors can play are very different, but uh, there's sort of big secular trends in the world that required a different response from investors than a conventional financial approach would allow for. Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it seems kind of very often that, that people tend to think of, of there's a sort of paradox between finance and uh, economic inequality, um, you know, in the sense that um, investor interests do little more than amplify inequality, particularly, you know, given the fact that um, in the economic inequality tends to be tied to wealth inequality, which tends to be tied to gains in equity markets. And if you're not part of the equity markets, you're you're losing out. How do you sort of reconcile that, that issue? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly one of the reasons that we like the topic as something to think about and also to sort of challenge the, you know, responsible investors and, and how they make a commitment to environmental and social issues. Um, you know, one of the things we do is point to the ways in which financialization, for lack of a better word, is linked to the production of inequality, sort of, and, you know, the uh, association of compensation and, um you know, executive remuneration through equity markets plays a role in engendering top-end inequality. I think a lot of people argue, um, and like you say, just generally, the sort of the links between wealth and the equity markets play a significant role in inequality. I think for investors, one of the things they can do is talk more about the financial system and how it's long-term designed to serve society better and how that relates to their long-term interests and the interests of their beneficiaries, if they're a group like a pension fund. Um, inequality requires maybe an investor voice in policy discussions about wage floors or responsible contracting policies or other ways where, again, the sort of near-term benefits for an individual enterprise may work against the long-term benefits for the economy and therefore for society and investors as a whole. I think, you know, you can pack a lot into a short-term, long-term distinction. Sometimes we, you know, overpack things into it. Um, you can pack a lot into sort of investors' role in shaping norms 
around uh, uh, the distribution of income, but at, at some level, this is also going to be a question of how investors can talk about the policies that shape, you know, pre-distribution mm. and redistribution of income, because that's how we address issues like inequality, too. Um, you know, I, we have the same discussions in climate. There certainly have policy discussions around climate, which are difficult and require uh, a balancing of interests and distinguishing between short and long-term benefits. But I think inequality as a topic makes them more acute. Uh, mm-hmm. And therefore, it's, I think, a, a good way to, to think about the field as a whole. Interesting. We mentioned it briefly, but we didn't go too much into it. But uh, it was on the, the SDGs, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. I mean, they've, over the last couple of years, sort of emerged as a pretty powerful framework to address poverty, environmental degradation, and inequality. What's interesting is uh, in another podcast I had with, uh, her name's Dr. Rachel Melson, uh, and she's part of the Tobacco-Free Portfolio Group, Uh, but she explained why the SDGs are so important um, for health, um, particularly, you know, in in this tobacco discussion. Um, When you look at SDGs and the role they might play in inequality context, how do you think they can they can be of use? Yeah, and, and, and so to, to extend on the, on the on the last question too. So the SDGs offer a target, a social target against which you can measure investment performance. And there's certainly ways that we're sort of, you know, uh, investment allocation decisions can either mitigate or exacerbate inequality. And in the U.S., we have a well-developed field of community investment, which is meant to target marginalized, uh, you know, places and people. And and provide for economic development. We have development finance globally, and these are ways that investors can put their money to work in, to mitigate inequality or to alleviate poverty or you know, achieve any of the social goals that are attached to the SDGs. It seems to me that the SDGs have at least the opportunity, and it's been astonishing you know, how quickly they've entered into all the different investors, sustainable impact, responsible, whatever, uh, discussions as the measure for whether finance is working, you know, in general, and whether a particular portfolio is solving social problems in particular. Uh, The challenge is going to be that uh, in order to achieve something as, you know, grand and necessary as the SDGs, it requires radical behavior change, not merely an accounting of whether one investment or another already in your portfolio is having some, you know, positive effect on the world. So I think the extent to which the SDGs can drive that, you know, deeper discussion about uh, how things would have to change in economy, society, and finance in order to uh, create these outcomes that are not being created by business as usual, that's really important. Developing metrics that allow you to measure that is obviously going to be part of the discussion. I've also been very interested, and I think um, there's lots of work to do on the SDGs as a coordinating platform for engagement among different investment types. The ways in which the SDGs can be a frame to better link development finance institutions with large institutional investors who don't do all that much together right now, um, or at least not to the extent that they could in in light of the SDGs. I've heard that... um, you know, from actors in the field that the SDGs have opened the door through sort of buy-in at executive levels and large institutional investors and development finance institutions and others. Uh, they've laid up, you know, the groundwork for different kinds of behavior. And I think that's one of the most interesting 
places to explore. I think that may also be just because that's my disposition to look for the the uh, place where cultural analysis, you know, mm. uh, has weight. Got it. The uh, you know on this inequality discussion, um, you know, the, I mean, typically the rise of populism tends to reflect you know uh, rising inequality and and diminishing opportunity. Um, yet you have this sort of strange you know situation in the U.S. where you have you know current policies, including the recently passed tax bill, um, uh, looking like they're simply going to exacerbate inequality, despite these sort of headline messages. How do you try and think about the the U.S. situation, you know, in the context of inequality? <laughs> or how do I block <laughs> it out? Yeah. Uh, it's really a six of one. I mean, there's it's look inequality. Um, you know, as the you know extensive literature on inequality, you know, constantly makes this point. It's a policy choice. You can tell because different countries have different levels of inequality with, you know, broadly similar economic positions. Um, the policy choices the U.S. seems to have just made in the tax bill, it's hard to know what's in it. Not clear that everybody who voted on it knows what's in it. Um, they look like they're going to worsen inequality, and there's not much investors can do about that. I mean, one thing investors can do is their voice is being deployed at times to reinforce inequality-inducing policies. So we can't do that, it'll hurt returns for, you know, shareholders and the pensioners won't get their money, um, is a rhetorical device, it's not really analysis, but a rhetorical device used to pass bills which favor, you know, policies that won't, will make economic, economic inequality worse. So um, I think we just should, you know, we shouldn't overestimate the role that investors can play in the broader discussion. We have to call attention to the fact that, you know, the policies that exacerbate inequality have, you know, maybe bad consequences for the economy and certainly bad consequences for people, which is why we, you know, shaped the economy in the first place. Um, but uh, there are also ways that the investor voice is being deployed that could be changed. And there are things that investors can do to contribute to the discussion about why um, inequality is a problem to be tackled. Hmm. Uh, you know, setbacks don't make that any different. Are there certain steps? I mean, you referred to kind of working towards a framework um, and overlay, you know, um, into the investment decision-making process. I mean, is there something that investors can start thinking about now in terms of integrating, you know, considerations around inequality into their own framework to their own decision-making? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I don't want to diminish. I mean, you know, I just don't think they're going to solve the problem, but they're important steps to take. Um, there are ways to measure, you, you know, particular kinds of investments, whether it's community development or, um, you know, offshore investment in small and medium-sized enterprises and development finance of different sorts. You can measure uh, those investments for their social impact, whether they're sort of inequality mitigating or um, exacerbating. Uh, you can evaluate the corporations in your portfolio for their contributions to inequality. How do they treat their workers? What are their labor provisions? Sort of what are those the human rights and supply chain provisions that create inequality, you know, between countries and between different parts of the workforce? Uh, and that can be part of shareholder engagement to the same extent that any other topic is part of shareholder engagement. Uh, you know, for, for the long-term benefits of corporations and society, these kinds of policies can be addressed at the enterprise level. Um, 
And then, you know, uh, I just don't think we should leave out the idea that the, the sort of investor participation in policy discussions, and those policy discussions can be, you know, narrow. What should we do about a certain region that has been, uh, that, that has, you know, uh, suffered because of deindustrialization or what's coming, you know, the just transition that's going to suffer because of our switch to a low carbon economy? Where is a role for investors in supporting economic development in those places so that peace, you know, workers and communities aren't left behind? Um, those, that kind of work is, I think, enabled by a fuller discussion or analysis of economic inequality, but also can work to, to mitigate it. Got it. Well, look, this has been fascinating, and thanks very much for your uh, views and opinions on the evolution of responsible investment and why economic inequality is so important. Um, so thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. Everyone, many thanks for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist at Man Group. Thanks for joining us, and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible investment or look for us on iTunes. <laughs>